So we're in Exodus 14, verses 13 through 31. What happened last week? Where, where, do, we, where do we leave off? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, what had happened? The, uh, the entire camp uh, was instructed to turn around, face a certain direction, mm-hmm. and allow Pharaoh to think he had the upper hand on him. Okay. Come out and try and trap him in. Okay. And so, the, go ahead. At the edge of the Red Sea. The, the edge of the Red Sea. At the edge. Yeah. And they were to face the Red Sea, and Pharaoh had started to pursue them. Okay. And they were all complaining. And they were complaining. That was the last. Yes, all of that's true, but we end here. They were complaining. Uh, they had a. Yeah, it's a great, great little synopsis. Um, we had a, a clear shot to the wilderness out of the reach of the borders of Egypt. God said, wait a minute, let's turn back. I got a second. I had a, had a thought we ought to go this way. I really, you know, I'm assessing new data. Um, so he puts them over in the Red Sea or, or on the edge of the Red Sea. So their, their backs are to the Red Sea and they're, and they're, or they're facing the Red Sea and, the, and to the back is what? The greatest military force on the planet at the time. <clears throat> and they got chariots and... Yeah, cavalry. I always say cavalry, but it's cavalry. The the horses are coming, the chariots are coming, the fast, swift warriors are coming, and Pharaoh's leading the charge. Woohoo! Raw at the helm, um, and they complain, they panic, they're hemmed in. They cry to God, but not in faith. Right? We saw that last week. They blame Moses in this treasonous statement. It would have been better to have been to serve the Egyptians than to die here. Are there no graves in Egypt? You know, this is kind of sarcastic thing. So in the moment of great deliverance for them, because we know it's going to happen. We saw it. We've seen the Cecil B. DeMille's movie. Um, the, anyway. <clears throat> Cecil who? Anyway, never mind. Uh, in the moment of great deliverance, they show fear and unbelief. So let's look at Moses' response in verse 13. And we're going to go to uh, 31. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I love that line. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea 
all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Wouldn't you like to have seen that? I love the way it starts. Do not fear. In the original language, um, that that is the most... That's the strongest possible form of negative that you can say. Don't fear. And then it's followed by two commands. What are they? Stand still and shut up. Stand firm. Stand firm. And then what's the next one? See the salvation of the Lord. Stand and see. Stand and see. The idea there... Are you going to stand with Pharaoh? Are you going to stand with Yahweh? Where will you stand? You're panicking. You're being treasonous. Play the man. That's what he's saying. Who will you stand with? Will they hold their ground with Yahweh? Not only does he say stand, but he calls on them to merely see God's salvation. It doesn't say stand pull out your you know, shepherd's staves and get ready to fight the Egyptians on a horse. He says, stand and see. It's a mere command of watching God's salvation. They have nothing to contribute. Who's going to war for them? God is. They've got nothing to offer here, right? I mean, they can't even move very fast because there's like two million of them and they've got kids and goats. I'll let you determine. I'll let you determine which kids we're talking about. Um, Israel's inability to help their in their deliverance is is underscored here. Yahweh will act, and Israel will watch and remain silent. This is fair, this is Moses' response to their unbelief, their statement of panic. Don't fear. Stand and see. These guys won't be here tomorrow morning. That's what he's saying. What a great statement of faith by Moses, right? He's standing. He's waiting. He knows God has spoken. He knows God is not leaving them there to die. So why does God respond to Moses in the way he does? What does he say? 
Why is he saying this to Moses? They're complaining to Moses. He's responding in faith to them, yet God questions Moses, why do you cry to me? Does that seem a little unfair? You stood it unfaithfully. <clears throat> or is he speaking to the people through Moses? What do you mean? He's speaking to Moses, and Moses tells the crowd what... What is Moses to the people and God? What is he? He's a communicator. He's a communicator. What else? What's another word? Mediator. I found this very interesting. Moses is one acting in faith. He's righteous here, right? Trust God. Stand and see. And yet God treats Moses as if he were the one complaining. That sound familiar? God sees Moses as a mediator, the representative of the people between God and man. And he attributes the unbelief of Israel to Moses because he's their... What, what, I'm sorry? Always a good answer in Sunday school. Um, notice the picture. The, we call that, here's a $10 word, federal headship here. This is a representative capacity that Moses is in. And God is attributing their unbelief to him, even though he's done... Nothing. He's busting on Moses for crying out, and he didn't have any part of it. And yet, Moses obeys, right? He doesn't say, wait a minute, he didn't. He understands what's going on. He's the mediator. God's answer is for Moses to speak and the people to start walking toward the sea, right? He, he is uh, he's saying that the time for prayer is over. It's time to act. Um, so what happens? Verse 16, what happens? What does he tell them to do? Does that sound familiar? We've seen that before? The snake. The, well, there's the snake issue. What, what about the other one? The, all, the, all the plagues tend to involve raising a staff. Um, especially the first one. And the first plague brought a curse on Egypt, right? This raising of the staff actually involves blessing and a curse. It's interesting how this works out. We'll look at it here in a little bit. And what does he say will happen? What does God tell Moses will happen? The sea will divide. Sea will divide. And, 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 and what? So that you may go through a dry ground. That word dry ground, <clears throat> it, it refers to something withered without moisture drained. There's a old story about a I will change the setting just to make it fun um, it was about a student in a uh, let's say world history class and the professor is telling the students um, yes this whole Red Sea thing we've actually figured out that it's the Reed Sea which is marshland and they were basically walking through six inches of water and so the Christian raises his hand and says that's an incredible miracle to drown all those Egyptians in six inches of water. <laughs> that was very smart. The dry ground here leaves nothing to uh, guesswork on what we're talking about. They're walking through on a, well, they're walking through on my dirt road. I mean, it, it's just completely dry, and it had been a sea. What an incredible 
incredible thing. Look at verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. That and I will, um, Carlos will like this, it, in the literal, in the Hebrew, it, it should be literally translated, and I behold I. <laughs> God is the subject and the main character of this event. And once again, he's hardening the hearts of the Egyptians. What's the point of this? Does he give us the point of this? Why is he doing this? To glorify him. It says it there, doesn't it? Kind of, kind of nice whenever we have the statement there. And verse 18 repeats verse 17. This is the principal aim of the Red Sea, the turning back, the having them hemmed in. That's the whole point, is, to, is that God would have glory. It's not Hebrew comfort that he had them turn back. It's not the absence of stress that he had them turn back. It's not shutting off the opportunity for fear and unbelief that he had them turn back. He has put them in a place where they have no place to run. That's it. They have to watch the salvation of God. There's nowhere else to go. So we see here again that God's sovereignty is the theme of the narrative. And it's the theme of the whole book. Haven't we seen that again and again? I'll do this and I'll have glory for my glory. My name will be known among the Egyptians. My name will be known and you will see the power of the Lord. You, know, you see this again and again and again uh, throughout the plague narratives. After this big declaration of sovereignty of God and the goal of His glory, who appears? I love this. Who appears? Verse 19. What does it say? Jesus. <laughs> Always a good answer. And in this case, I would agree with you, the right one. <laughs> the angel of God. Same language that was used of the theophany. There's your $10 word. The theophany and the burning bush who received the honor of God. Here again, the angel of the Lord shows up. And what does he do? He was leading them in the front. What does he do? He goes behind them. What's going on with this? What, 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 does, the, what does the text say is happening? So there's this cloud... What does that tell you? The darkness here actually brings back to memory the ninth plague, doesn't it? They can't see. They're in total darkness, and yet on the other side of the cloud, there's light. He's giving them light. That's kind of wicked cool. What translation are you using? Well, it says, and there was the cloud and the darkness. Right? It lit up the night, that one coming here, the other all night. I, I was just imagining it just being night and the cloud being light. And the, the idea is that the Egyptians are in darkness and the Hebrews are in light. There's a divide between the two sides. It's doing two things at once there. Um, and, and by putting himself at the rear of, Israel, of Israel's camp, what is he acting as? He's, divide, he's not letting one come near the other. What, what is that? He's defending them. What, 
what do we call that if you're you got a shield? A shield. He's shielding them. And we may have mentioned this in class before. I think somebody may have brought this up, and I think it's a great point. What does a shield do? Protects. Okay. Shields you. Yeah. Um, it takes the blows you can't take. Right? So here we see Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, I am thoroughly convinced, um, shielding, taking the blows, defending them when they can't defend themselves. Again, another picture of the gospel. Blessing and curse. There's darkness to the Egyptians, there's light to Israel. Uh, Ra cannot bring light to his people, which is kind of odd since he's supposed to be the sun god. Yes, that's true. I guess we'll give him a pass because he was sleepy. There can be another, their gods are asleep, they're in darkness. Our God of Israel never sleeps. It's another polemic, another attack against their culture and against their, their gods. All right, look at verse 21. Moses obeys, and the text says that God caused the sea to literally retire or go back. How long does this take? All night. night. It's an east wind that's doing it. Which way are they going? Which way is Canaan from where they are? If they're in Egypt and they're going to Canaan, let's say that I'm not going to go. They're going east. And there's an east wind coming. So where does the the parting start? On the opposite shore. How frustrating <laughs> would that be? Hey, what's going on over there? Sure, it's a hot wind. What's going on over there? It's party. Why couldn't he have started here? We could be going now. We could be on the move. Yeah, that's how they do it in the Disney movie. Yeah. So they're wrong. Well, we should write them. That's the <laughs> that's the that's the only place they're wrong. Um, so it starts from the. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, they had, they had the wind drying, dividing the sea from the opposite side. And does it do it really, fairly quickly? How long did it take? All night. All night they're waiting and watching. Okay, it's coming a little closer. Did it move again? Did it, can you imagine just the, ah, the panic there? But they're seeing what he's doing. And it says in the text, he, he fashioned the sea into dry land. I love that. He fashioned the sea into dry land. And then eventually, once they have waited for the sea to completely part, and they have a path of dry, withered land um, between, between the two walls, it says, they walk in the midst of the sea, with the walls on either side, the walls being, a, a, that word there is a fortification for a city. There are a couple other times that Moses has talked about water separating and leaving dry land. Can you, can you think when that might be? Recall way back. Are y'all cold? Are you? Okay. 
there's a couple other times that, that Moses talks about the, um, the water div- being divided and leaving dry ground. Can you recall when they would be when that would be? It was in Genesis. Okay. Creation. Creation. God separated the waters from the waters and dry land appeared. Okay. There's one, Genesis 1 9. Where else? The flood, Noah, and uh, and all of that, and then here. This is something God does. <laughs> he takes chaos and, and makes order. Uh, he takes turbulence and makes makes peace. And here is there, God causes the water to be removed so dry land might appear. Um, all right, back to the Egyptian camp. What would a rational person do at this point? Suicide. Okay. <laughs> Start running. Freaking out. Yeah, I don't know if suicide would be a rational incident either. Um, they've been in darkness all night. The cloud seems to pass to the side, and they can see what's going on. They see the Hebrews running or running, walking through the middle on dry on dry ground. Two walls of water on either side of them. What's a reasonable army to do? Hey, we can catch them. Right? We can get them. We'll meet them in the middle of the sea and slaughter them. It'll be great. Ten plagues. Slaughter the firstborn. Been fighting a cloud all night from the darkness. Been freaking out because we can't see. Um, Let's go in the middle of these high waters. What a great idea. Right? That's not rational. I think I'd call it quits at that point. Wouldn't you? What's going on? Their hearts are hardened. What does the text say? In the morning watch, 2 to 6 a.m. generally, what that's going to be in verse 24. In the morning watch, the cloud, God in the cloud, Literally, it says, leant over and looked down at the Egyptian forces. What's going on down there? I mean, this, this incidental glance, the way the text reads, it's hilarious. The, this disdain that God has for the Egyptians and their forces and their acts of rebellion against him. And then he throws them into confusion, and the text says by noise. We, we don't know if there's some kind of thunder or whatever was going on, but there's some kind of some kind of confusion that he's causing. And notice the irony. What baited Pharaoh into coming after Israel in the first place was the confusion of Israel, the perceived confusion of Israel in the desert. And now they're confused in the midst of the sea like cattle. What else does he do to add to the confusion? You have a textual note there? Yes. What does it say? I think that's the better, better thing because that's what the Hebrew says. I mean, that, that, he, that he took them off. Think about that. That would make traveling a little heavy. When you lose a wheel, you go slower, if at all. They're driving in, in heaviness, is what the text says. Like Pharaoh's heart. Again, we have this idea of heaviness being a picture of what's going on in his heart. So what do we see? God commands Moses to do another act with this staff. What is it? Verse 26 and 27. Close the sea back. Stretch it out over the sea. 
this is his hand on this stuff. He had to use it. What well, didn't use his nose? So, what uh, what does that remind you of? The waters are going to be closed over these Egyptians. This entire, well, not the entire army, really just the, the chariots and the cavalry. The the army's kind of hanging back. Is the picture real? The flood, burial, death. Does it remind you of some other waters closing over some other people at some point in, say, Exodus 1, 2? Oh, um, is it when, when the babies were yeah. killed? When they ordered that all the Egyptian males, two and under, be thrown into the Nile, this is the final retribution for that murder the systematic murder of Hebrew children. And it happens at daybreak. We talked about the Egyptian gods being asleep at night. Where is Ra here as his Egyptians are covered in water at daylight? Where is his power here? Who is God? Who is sovereign? Ra, Pharaoh, or Yahweh? Pharaoh is not Yes, sir. You think about Egypt, what's left of Egypt? I mean, he's taken everything. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their society is demolished. They've got no army, no agriculture, no anything. Yeah, and they are they are wiped out as a world power and are really not a significant force to be reckoned with until after the death of Solomon. We see, again, some hint of Egyptian um, strength, but never the world power that they were at this point in time. Um, so you see the boasting of the Egyptians and the fears of the Hebrews are dashed by God's overwhelming power in this. There's a phrase in there. Um, let's see in verse uh, 26, 27. So, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. You have a textual note there. It should say, shook off. Mm-hmm. Like one takes a rug to remove leaves and shakes them off into the water. There's an incredible, the, the language here is just so overwhelming, God's sovereignty and his power. It's just nothing. He looks over, he shakes them off into the sea, and it, it's done. This massive judgment is done. And he returns the water to its place. I want to draw this point out too. That there's a there's a creation account picture here. At least the first three days, there's light and darkness. The separation of the two first day. The waters are divided, like the second day, and the dry land emerges like the third day. And some of the smart guys say the Red Sea crossing is to be reconstructed or is a construction of a redemption creation kind of narrative. God redeeming His people through. Um, a reenactment of creation. Take with that what, what you will. There's some similarities. So Israel does see the Egyptians again, though, right? I mean, they, something happens. Doesn't does Christ? Um, what happens when Christ flees to the desert or to the wilderness? Right after he's born, doesn't he go for three years to, to escape Herod? Mm-hmm. 
saw them dead on the shore. Thank you. The, uh, <laughs> they see them again, but they don't see them like they were the day before. Grant, you're a thinker. Um, they see them dead on the shore. That's it. Egypt is done for centuries. For Israel, this came to be viewed, this Red Sea crossing, as a paradigm for later salvation events. You see it when the Babylonian captivity uh, in Zechariah 10, you'll, you see this... Um, you see this picture again of crossing the Red Sea. Later prophets would talk about it. Look, turn to Isaiah, um, Isaiah fifty-one ten. Chapter fifty-one, verse ten in Isaiah. prophet writes, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's a remembrance involved here. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember His power. Remember His working on your behalf, being your shield. And then He points to what's going to happen. Once we look back, we remember, but what's going to happen will be greater than the former, is the idea. Unbelief is the same in all ages. David says, you know, in, in, in 1 Samuel. I shall one, in one day perish by the hand of Saul. I mean, he despairs. He has this, these episodes of unbelief. I mean, you're on the run for years at a time um, against the king. I, I think that's natural. But unbelief is the same in all ages. Elijah flees Jezebel. Peter denies Christ and runs. We see that when we face hard things, there's a great temptation to cower in fear, right? It would have been better. We all have moments of unbelief and doubt, but what do we learn from this? Do not fear. We need to remember God's faithfulness, what He's done for His people in the past, what He's done for us in Christ, His faithfulness there, and what His continued faithfulness is through the ages of the church. Can you think of things in your life where you look back and, wow, I didn't think there was ever going to be a solution to this. I didn't think this was ever going to resolve. And yet God was faithful. Yes, no? Yes. Okay. Good. I'm glad to see some yeses. That's a good thing. Um, When you run up against something again, rehearse those in your head. That's that's why they taught their children again and again. You shall say to your children about the Passover. You'll remind them of this event in the Red Sea. Next chapter... We'll see a song was written about celebrating this event, and they rehearsed that. It was part of their liturgy, of their culture. Is that ours? Do we rehearse ourselves, rehearsing ourselves, the faithfulness of God? Isn't that an act of faith 
as well to remind what he's done? Isn't that uh, something we do in community? When we give testimony to what God has done in faithfulness to, to us, it encourages the rest of the brothers and sisters in Christ on that as well. There's no difficulty too great for Christ. Our weaknesses, our inability to save ourselves, is His opportunity for glory. Do you think that the God who divided the Red Sea is powerless to fight on your behalf, unable to care for you, impotent to work in you to kill that thing you keep going back to. Do we sometimes live that way? We forget that He is God, we are not, and we can depend on Him because He's faithful. But with this story also comes a warning. What happens to this generation? We'll get there someday. They don't see Canaan. Why? Because what they did at the edge of the Red Sea to Moses, they do throughout the time in the desert. They forget. They murmur. They complain. They doubt God's goodness and His faithfulness to them. They go back to, oh, it would have been better if we had been serving the Egyptians. We had melons in Egypt. I don't understand the thing with the melons. i got to tell you. They say that a lot. We had leeks and melons. What's the... Why? you got quail in the desert. I don't know. I guess so. It must have been some melons. <laughs> the same generation who saw the plagues and the parting of the sea die wandering in the desert because of their persistent unbelief and rebellion against God. First, turn to 1 Corinthians 1 through 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. Not the whole chapters. <laughs> promise. Chapter 10, 1 through 14. This is Paul's takeaway from this. One of Paul's takeaways. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them... As an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide 
the way of escape, that you may may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We can have all the benefits of being involved in the church. We can know the language. We can hear the sermons. We can hear. We can have the fellowship and the, and the spiritual lattes. We can have all that stuff. That's good. Those are all good things. Don't be lulled into going back to what you've been delivered from. Don't be lulled into unbelief because doing what is commanded in the community of faith is too difficult to accomplish. Don't be lulled in trading Christ for something lesser. Because you can have all these experiences, you have all this wonderful stuff, and yet if we're not attending to our doubts and unbelief regularly. Philip said this, and it just it it bothers me that he said it, but I'm glad he said it because it needs to be said. Every sin we commit could be the one that proves that we were never in Christ to begin with. Because it's God who grants repentance. Right? Not losing your salvation is not that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is be mindful of following Christ zealously. Rest in what he's done. Don't navel gaze all the time, but focus on him and not on needs, desires, fears, anxieties, whatever those are. Focus on him. Stay true to him. And don't trade him out for something else that's lesser and false and deceitful and will kill you in the end. Does that make sense? I don't want to run the race in vain. I hope you don't either. I'm sure you don't. I'm confident you don't. Let's not do it. All right. Any questions? Any comments? Kevin, sometimes um, I'm sitting here thinking about what you're saying, and I keep thinking about my belly. Not that I'm hungry now, but I am. But, you know. I'm sorry, I didn't bring anything this morning. Oh, sure, sure. Um, We get focused on food. We get focused on needing to survive. We get focused on feeding our five senses, Mm -hmm. which are all good things. We, while we're here on Earth, you know, we need to to work to get money to eat and everything. But as you're saying, trade God for lesser. That's what I'm thinking of. They're good things. It's just having a job and eating and having a house and protection and, and all that stuff, I think in, in my life, I'm guilty of putting that above God sometimes. Mm-hmm. They're good things in the right place, but it's funny how there's so many verses that say the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Deuteronomy 4, or Matthew 4, 4, quoting Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. man does not live by bread alone, yeah. you know? Um, do not worry about what you will eat or drink. Right. For God feeds the sparrows, he will not look after you and all stuff. But um, anyway, to me that it's hard to find a good balance there. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, well, I can't forsake the world and forsake my belly and forsake my job Mm -hmm. to read scripture and pray 24 hours a day. Right. And I can't forsake God 
to work really hard and to feed my belly all. So it's like... It's like the ditches on either side that we talked about on Friday, right? That there's a, there's a balance that we find. There's a... He has commanded us, I mean, if you don't work, you don't eat, right? You, you've got to work. You, you need to find something that is a skill that, that you, that you um, live and provide for yourself and, and treat it as an act of worship in our jobs and how we work as, as unto the Lord. That's a good thing. So we don't want to be, I'm, I'm just going to surround my Bible and pray all day. Unless there are times set apart for that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a retreat, which we've never done in this class. We probably should. But there's not, there are times of retreat. That's good. But, there, but you're right. You can go to the other extreme. and just It's all about providing for myself and being self-sufficient. I'm a self-made man. I'm self-employed. Self, 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 self. That, too, is an idolatry. There's a balance. There's a, there's a mindset of priestliness in how we go about our, our day today routine. I'm a student to the glory of God. You know, I'm I know think think of this and how are you I'm a lawyer to the glory of God. You know? I mean th- there there are those callings that we each have, and I say callings loosely. Um, I didn't have any kind of angel tell me to go to law school. But but there are those things that we do that are that are are Ways of, of of displaying the glory of God in our jobs and in and how we do, but they but they can become idols. And then the other side can become an idol. Oh, I just want to live on the mountaintop, you know. Th- those are also idols. Um, it's very mundane this faith that we have. It's glory in the mundane. Read, study, pray. Have food together. Be faithful with the local body. There's nothing really overtly crazy about that. I mean, we don't have compounds out in the middle of nowhere where we do these cleansing rituals with medicines and mirror chants and stuff, Scientology and all that mess. We don't do that mess. It's very real, the Christian faith. Very mundane, very just nuts and bolts kind of stuff and yet it's it's an incredible thing that God has redeemed a people to himself to live reality as unto him it's a bigger vision than we have of oh I just gotta do my job well it's bigger to God your job is reflecting his glory your study is reflecting his glory your relationships with each other are reflecting his glory and his the more difficult they are, the bigger opportunity, and I will get glory among the Americans and how and how you and how you live that out. It can happen. It can happen. Well, I think they're drowning in debt right now, so um, it's the Red Sea. Anyway, um, so sorry. All right. Well we won't win on that. Somebody else say something else. Oh, well, okay. That's a, yeah, it's a, you spell Red Sea backwards. That's what you have a bomb in Hebrew. Um, all right. Anything else? Any other comments? I was going to add to that comment that Adrian said. Um, when we're like working and we know that we're dependent on stuff, like where's our heart in that moment? Are we doing it because, I mean, am I working because, okay, right now it's my work, it's my work time, it's not God's time, mm-hmm. and I have to work for myself. Is that where your heart is when you're 
mm -hmm. are even when you're eating. Right. That's why I say like you need to glorify God in whatever you When you're eating is is really the most basic <laughs> yeah. test, isn't of that, isn't it? Yes. Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That extra bite of chips and salsa. <laughs> What's my idol? What's my salsaritas? God forgive me. Um, but yes, that's true. I mean, the just, the difference between a large and a small burrito. I mean, can be can be a sinful. That could sinful. be that one sin that determines. They could be. Well, if you keep doing it, you're gonna have a heart attack. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, no, I'm not gonna find out. I'm not gonna do that. Any anything else? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these pictures of your grace that we see um, throughout throughout the Old Testament, especially as we have been walking through Exodus. When we feel weak, when we know we have nothing, you make a way where there is no way. When we fail time and time again in our unbelief, you make a way where there is no way. I find myself praying again and again the prayer of the Father to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God, work in us. Strengthen, <laughs> strengthen the feeble knees and the, and, and the weak hands uh, of our faith that we easily trade out your glory and your righteousness for goofy things. Whether it's lust or fear or money or placing a relationship over and against what you've called us to be in Christ. God, break our hearts, humble us so that we see nothing but Jesus crucified and risen on our behalf. Drive us to the cross. Drive us to see his beauty against, over and above, all of the lesser lies that we, that we so often go after. Remind us again and again that we've been freed from the bondage of our rebellion and our sin. That you've given us a new heart that longs for you. By your spirit, stir that up in us so that we pursue holiness we pursue faithfulness to you and to your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.